the hardest thing about movies is keeping it contained, keeping the story where you want it to be and not just, oh, it's a movie. We got to do explosions. We got to do big. I mean, Nisei, we did explosions, but you know what I mean? Just going overboard, over the top, doing everything and everything you can. But the point is, it's, you know, at the core of every good story, it doesn't matter if it's sci-fi, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a biopic, doesn't matter whatever, it's, there's this driving human force that we can all relate to. And that is so hard to capture, like, let alone in any form of storytelling. So to be able to do that with a crew of 80 people, with actors, with everything else, I've, I feel like I've always had that sort of appreciation for it. Welcome to the Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know. The podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas. I'm man enough to admit that I just asked Darren Haruo Ray how you pronounce the middle name. But I mean, <laughs> listen, when you do what I do for a living, do you? can you imagine how many names I've mispronounced? Well, it's funny. When I, my first job in middle school, I was a soccer referee. And one of the things I would have to do is you'd have to read all the players' names and like tap the shin guards, check the cleats. And so I have nightmares of trying to get people's names right because I would just butcher people's names since I was... <laughs> Dude, I would do it on the air or from the stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and I I remember I, I went to work in Louisiana and hey, come see us this weekend. We're gonna be over at Richard 66 and the phones light up. All right, it's the phone and the guys, you know, this 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 Cajun says, It's Richard, you idiot. <laughs> okay. All right. I should have known. <laughs> My fault. First day on the air. Yeah. First day on the air. And it's just been it's been like that ever since then. So I I always tell some people, listen, I'm going to I'm going to butcher your name at some point, but we'll all just move forward. I won't be the first and I damn sure won't be the last. Yeah. As long as you know, we're all aware. So <laughs> San Jose State grad, huh? Yeah. 2013. So it's about 10 years now. Wow. Look at you graduating uh, 10 years out of college, Darren Harano Ray, and, and knowing that, was this one something you want, always wanted to do? I mean, you were a film major? Yeah. So uh, RTVF, radio, television, film, but I basically just did all the film classes. I didn't really do anything else there. Um, yeah. Uh, as far as like filmmaking, I it was something I always knew I wanted to do. My dad was a huge movie nerd. Um, I don't know how many people actually know Laserdisc, if you remember those. Um, you know, there's the, yes. the classic Laserdisc VHS debate. Um, but no, so it's my dad would have a wall of Laserdiscs in our garage, and he still has them. And we never rented movies because my dad's like, why would I pay five bucks to rent a movie when I know I'm going to watch it four times, so I might as well buy it. And so he amassed this collection of, you know, just everything, you know, from kids' movies to adult. Like he showed me Space Odyssey when I was like eight. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we—that's pretty deep. Yeah. Was, so we sat down because you know I'm, I love sci-fi. My dad loves sci-fi. We sat down. He's just like, okay, what do you think this means? Just like afterwards, like just like a full psychological breakdown of of an eight-year-old's understanding of it. And so um, I owe a lot to you know my dad being so invested in the movies. And you know when I got the chance out of high school, the fact that my parents were like, one, you're going to college, but Two, you get, do what you want. Like, don't look back on your life, you know, 10, 20 years later and wish you could have at least tried it. Because the very least, you can always start over. So, 
Don't you love the fact that movies are digital now? I mean, I used to, you know, bless your dad's heart with the laser disc and stuff, but I used to hate having to like the, the DVDs and then the compact, you know, well, first of all, the VHS and then the compact disc, and they just would take up space and grow dust. And now it's, it's all on my TV. You know? I don't know. I think there's I think there's something it's kind of like, you know, vinyl and record how that's kind of making a comeback. Something like having something tangible and physical and like old laser disc you would get these like leather bound books with like these like, you know, pages you can flip through. Like Star Wars was like this like it's this the whole experience of opening the box and then you have like the behind the scenes stuff too. And so I think it makes you more appreciative and more selective cuz I don't know if you have the same thing modern, you know, streaming platforms. It's like how do you pick what to watch? Cuz you literally are just thrown 2 million things in your face. So it's like, oh, I'll just go back to something comfortable, something that I've already seen because I, it scares me looking at all these different icons. So, Well, see, my thing is I have an 11 and a 13-year-old, right? And so I'm at that stage. I'm, I'm still where repetition, mm -hmm. like you're saying, repetition is the way human brains form connections. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in my generation, we watched Star Trek and Gilligan's Island. Right. And Brady Bunch a million times, mm -hmm. you know, and, and everybody does that. And I do love... I do love having the movies just available on digital. Instead of having to go and pick one up and stuff like that, I do love just having that. Because all I need is just, honestly, unlike your dad, I hate watching movies over again. I do. <laughs> I do. I, 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 I don't read books over again. Yeah. And I'm a big reader. Yeah. I read a book one time and I'm done. You know, And and I'm not even big on watching reruns of TV shows I like. You know, but kids, kids are repetition. So that's what you do is you have repetition. Yeah. So it's wonderful to have the little repetition and being able to pull up, oh, you want to watch Minions? Or do you want to watch Hotel Transylvania 3? Or do you want to watch, you know, Wally? What do you want to do? You know, did, what were what were the seminal movies? Because you're saying your dad's such a film buff. What was the seminal movies like? If I had to go, think of the 17-year-old Darren. What would he say his three favorite movies are? Not this guy who's a lot more erudite and experienced and into the into the avenue of filmmaking. What did that kid just go? Yeah, yeah, I can watch these over and over again. I mean, I you know, there's always classic Spielberg, Jurassic Park, you know, Zemeckis, Back to the Future, Star Wars. Of course, those are kind of the staples. But thinking back then, like things that really resonated with me was Space Odyssey was definitely one. Um, I made a point. There was a theater. Uh, near me when I was growing up that was closing and like their final screening was a 70 mil print of Space Odyssey. And so I actually got to see it in a theater like how it would have been when it came out and that was cool. Um, the second movie I would say is Leon the Professional. Uh, I don't know if you know that one, Jean Renault. Was that, was that about the assassin? Mm -hmm. And Natalie Portman as the little girl. Yeah, Natalie Portman as the young girl. Um, and I always loved films that kind of portray this father-daughter, father-son dynamic and this kind of parenting aspect to it. Um, like un unexpecting, unwarranting parenting, like from like the least likely possible person, right? An assassin. And so I always think those are very interesting plays and kind of speak, you know, just to humans in general, like having a child, not knowing what, it, you know, not knowing what to do with it, like your first child. Um, third movie, that's a tricky one. Um, God, I would I would have to go back and say... Indiana Jones, because I just watched that so many times. Uh, the first one that was just like when I didn't know what to put on, that would I would always just put on Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
So now that you, because the entertainment factor, right? I mean, that, it, it, at that point, we're just about the entertainment factor. What age did it turn into? And we're going to talk about what all you're doing mm-hmm. and the, the, the film Nisei or Nisei? Uh, Nisei. Nisei. Yeah. We're going to talk about Nisei because that's been up at CineQuest and, and a, a brilliant piece of work and all the other stuff you've done. But I just love, you don't get a chance to talk to filmmakers mm-hmm. and go, how does that work? So, Excuse me while I just kind of nerd out for a minute, because I, lo- I love I love movies. Uh, not to the point where I'd want to make one, but I love movies. When did it flip for you? When did you start noticing the filmmaking technique and not just the entertainment? I think that was always kind of part of the fun of it for me, though, was figuring out how they did stuff. Um, I remember like Little Shop of Horrors watching that and like like really getting interested in puppeteering and and. Googling back then, whatever what it was back then and that kind of stuff. So I've always kind of had this love for figuring out how they did it. And I think it's funny when I got into the industry, people asked me, uh, hey, do, can you not watch movies anymore? Does your taste change? Um, is it not as fun? And I think I'm like, no, it's even more fun because I see all the trials that go behind it. And I see the amount of effort to put, you know, one person on a screen and you have those movies that kind of resonate with you like your whole life, like something like The Professional. And you don't realize it's like there's two people on screen, but there's 80 people behind the camera that you don't even think about that are there. And so it's like that makes me that much more appreciative of like how you can take risks and how you can keep something small and subjective and to the point and kind of keep the hardest thing about movies is keeping it contained, keeping the story where you want it to be and not just, oh, it's a movie. We got to do explosions. We got to do big. I mean, Nisei, we did explosions, but you know what I mean? Just going overboard, over the top, doing everything and everything you can. But the point is, it's, you know, at the core of every good story, it doesn't matter if it's sci-fi, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a biopic, doesn't matter, whatever. It's there's this driving human force that we can all relate to. And that is so hard to capture, like let alone in any form of storytelling. So to be able to do that, with a crew of 80 people, with actors, with everything else, I've, I feel like I've always had that sort of appreciation for it. So like, even to this day, I still watch movies and think like, oh, that's cool how they did that, but it doesn't detract me. It just impresses me more of how they accomplished it. So I, I am intrigued, especially as I got older and you started thinking about all the untold things. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to, I had a guest on, lady was on a big TV show. And uh, I was like, I was telling her how I was talking to my family and we're, we're like, think about what it took because it was a shot of them on a loading dock. Mm-hmm. They went to the main character. They said something. They turned around and talked to the person who's at the loading dock. And then they had another angle for that pack. And it was just and it was literally 10 seconds worth of film, yeah. 10 seconds worth of action. Yeah. And I'm like, I told my family, imagine how many times they had to do that and reset the camera and do all the different angles and get the lighting and get continuity and stuff for 10 seconds of action. And she was like, you have no idea. She goes, we filmed all day before for 40 seconds. She was literally 8 a.m. to 5 to get 40 seconds of movement. And I'm like. And that's the thing that's mind blowing. It's the stuff that we get to take for granted, but you don't. Yeah, it's it's the little details that add up and wait. What makes you know a movie professional, or or you know, it makes it resonate. Like look at something like Lawrence of Arabia. Like think of the shots. You know, just a perfect example of this. Like you know, like close up Peter O'Toole like sitting on the horse, and then you cut back to a wide shot where they're two miles away. 
they can't just run there. They have to drive there. You know, they have to get pack up all the gear. And back then it's film cameras. The cameras weigh hundreds of pounds. They got to load them up on trucks, make sure there's no footprints, make sure there's nothing that shows that there's other people in this land and drive all the way, shoot that. Like, obviously there's like, you plan it so you can shoot more efficiently, but just the logistics of it is incredible. And like, definitely when I went to college and started learning about scheduling and how to break stuff down, um, it, it really is incredible. Like even something like once we, we dive into Nisei, for example, like the war scene, it's, that was shot over three days. And a lot of it was, you know, we're shooting up on the hillside, we're shooting the, you know, an explosion a different day. So they have to react to the explosion, but they don't actually get to see the explosion, but we have to know which way their eye lines and make sure they match. So it doesn't look like they're looking away. And so it's, I think in our film, it's all of four minutes, three minutes, like that whole action sequence. And that was one of the biggest chunks was, was three days of filming that stuff. So it's, it's a lot of planning and details. So. Wow. I, I, I just, I, I find it fascinating from that and what, and you know, like I said, I watched your park Arcadia, which you won some awards with. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful little, it's like 28 minutes. Uh, and it's a little yeah. sci-fi. Yeah. Thing. And, and it's, Fun. And and this was, as you said, when I, I brought it up to you before we started, and you're like, well, there's a blast from the past. That, you know, to you is like, man, that was a long time ago. Do you watch stuff like I'll listen to shows of mine? Right. I was literally doing this. I was I was going through some files and I'll listen to some shows of mine from the 90s. That's right. I'm that old. From the uh, from the 90s. And my thought was my, my wife asked me, she goes, what do you think? And I'm like, I'm not sure I like that guy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, I, I, yeah. I'm not sure that that guy and I would get along. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, it's what is it? What does it look like when because you have so many different representations. Mm. So when you sit back and see that, what's your take? Because it's something you obviously should be proud of. I, yeah. I found it very entertaining. Yeah. You know, but with you, it was still, it was still early in your journey. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of a roller coaster. I can tell you the experience for every single project. You finish shooting, you're exhausted. You're, it's very rewarding, fulfilling. It's the greatest thing ever. You go to editing, you get the first cut of the edit and you go, Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. Why did I ever decide to be a filmmaker? This thing is a complete disaster. Everyone's going to know I'm a fraud. Then you keep editing, keep editing it. And you're like, okay, this is starting to get better, get better. And eventually you get the finished project and you're like, Hey, this is really great. Really great for like the initial year. About two years after that, you hate it. You think it's awful. You're, you know, you're at screenings. You're kind of just like putting your head down, just like, oh, why did I do that choice? And then you kind of look back at it. I would say like the three to four year mark after it's completed, and you go, you know, that's actually that's actually pretty good. Like I would do stuff differently now, but I actually see what I was doing and you know the intention there. And and, that, and that's the biggest thing. Like um, I actually during this project, I went back to San Jose State and like help you know teach students and stuff like that. And uh, the biggest thing I can tell them is one, just make stuff. Don't, you know, even if you don't feel ready, just make stuff. But two, when you look back on stuff, obviously you look at it now, you don't think it's the greatest. But the question is, was that the best you could have done in the moment? And if the answer was yes, then that's great. Because that means the fact that you're looking at it now with a different lens means you've grown from it and you've become a better filmmaker. You've become, you know, you're, you've made progress in your career. And so that's the way I kind of view it. And so I'm, I'm much more appreciative of my old 
work too. Cause like, I, I'll admit like my older work right after I was, you know, didn't even want to look at it. Didn't want to touch it. I was just like, ah, that's kind of crap. But I think now that I'm further in my career, I've uh, begun to appreciate it more, if that makes sense. Wow. That is, you know, young punks like you have a lot of wisdom really pissed me off. <laughs> uh, that was, that was brilliant. Was that the best I could do at the time? I mean, especially if you're in the world of art, mm-hmm. and, and I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's music, painting, filmmaking, whatever. That's a great question to ask yourself. And Was that the best I could do at the time? And it's subjective, too, in the sense of, like, I'm not saying is that the greatest piece of art you could have made at the time, because filmmaking is a team sport, right? You have so many people involved, and... The reality of filmmaking is you're constantly compromising. It's like, I don't have enough time in the day to get all my shots. I don't have enough time in the day to, you know, do one more take and stuff like that. And so it's about mediating and finding this happy medium and trusting the people you work with. And so when I say, is that the best you could have done? I don't mean it necessarily. It's the greatest film ever. It's you are at a place to get the most out of you and your crew. And then that's the end result. That's your product out of it. So. And that's, I would think I, I don't, I don't understand it is is because I know in music, there's a producer in music, Mm. you know, but I don't know if a producer in film and television are the same things because I know like in TV, they give people production credits, actors production credits because it's a way of paying them more money. Right. And and they're not really doing it or paying them less. Yeah. Are there the producer? So, uh, and maybe that, maybe that has syndication rights. I don't Mm. know. Maybe that's something that factors into that. I don't understand all the contracts and stuff like that. What is the difference with a a producer and a director in film? It's funny. I always say that the director, you can be the dumbest person on set. You can know the least, um, which is funny that it always comes with the egos, right? The directors, um, the point of the director, in my opinion, is being able to facilitate, being able to facilitate your actors, being able to work with your cinematographer, your production designer, your sound designer. You're the person in the moment having to make the decisions. Uh, you're the yes or no. Like coming up, it's like, do we want to shoot this now? Do we want to shoot this coverage? Yes or no. Um, producer is, you know, boots on the ground, lining everything up, right? Arranging stuff. Like obviously bigger productions, you have location managers, like associate producers, production managers, stuff like that. But basically the production side of it is the logistics side of it. You know, it's like, all right, let's make sure our locations are locked. Let's make sure when we show up today, there's going to be bathrooms. Let's make sure, you know what I mean? Like the the prop bus will be here. And so mm-hmm. it's all this almost like, I don't want to say thankless, but it's a lot of the back end stuff that isn't as much glory as the title director, right? Director is the one everyone sees sitting in the chair yelling action. But in the reality, it's like, I would argue like as a director, you almost do the least amount of work. Um, like obviously with this project, I was much more involved and uh, you know, I was hands-on from the very beginning. Um, but you know, producers are very much critical and producers aren't necessarily the ones to like, some producers are like, they'll be behind the director saying, Hey, I think you should do one more. Let's try it like that. Um, a lot of directors don't want that. Um, I have amazing producing team, like Nick Martinez, Jessica Oltoff, who, you know, I trust creatively as well. So if I'm going a million miles an hour, my head's all over the place, worrying about shots. If they come up to me and be like, Hey, I don't think you got it. Like I'll listen. And so that's a trust there, right? And I think that's very important in that regard. But there's so many million 
positions on crew. Like, I don't know if you saw the credits for Nisei where it just kept going and going and going and going. And that's any movie in the world. Yeah. Right? I mean, Marvel got around that by giving you little little Easter eggs to make you sit through the damn yeah, credits. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there was a story out there talking about new parents. If you're looking for new names, watch the credits <laughs> because people, you'll see names that you've never seen or thought of. Yeah. And I'm like, that's flipping brilliant. You know, plus it, those people deserve credit because there's a whole lot of work on mm-hmm. that. You know, it's when you, when you sit back and, and as a director, when you hear the stories of Stanley Kubrick, do you, do you look at that with, wow, I'd love, I'd love to have that much power. Or do you look at that as who in the world would want to do that? Or do you fall in between? I think I kind of fall in between in that regard. Like, I don't know if I agree with him or, you know, someone like Fincher who will do a hundred takes and they have this ideology of you have to break the actor, break the, you know, performance till the point that's what makes a good actor. Um, I don't know if I can, I should name names, but actually my first job ever, I was a production assistant on a movie up here and I got to drive an actor that worked with Kubrick and he would just tell me, he goes, you would just do take after take after take after take. And like, he wouldn't tell you anything. It's just like a cut, go again, cut, go again, cut, go again. And the point is he was just driving you to the point of exhaustion. Um, and I think like the movie was supposed to take three months to film budgeted wise. And they ended up taking like eight months because of that's his process. Um, and so I, I mean, that's his style. Right. And I love his movies. Um, I think he's an incredible filmmaker. I don't see myself that way. Um, I think a big part of directing is getting casting right to start with. Um, and not, not saying he got casting wrong, but I kind of describe it as, you know, like you're a manager or coach of a professional team, not like a a T-ball team or a peewee team where I'm not here to tell you how to play the game. I'm here to sort of point you in the right direction when I think you need to change or try something different. And I think that applies to directing towards actors as well. Like I'm casting you because I know you're going to bring something to this role, but I'm not going to teach you how to be this role. Um, it's more of, you know, I want you to try it a little differently, come in a little, you know, softer, harder, something like that. But it's not an overall, like starting from a ground, like rebuild, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, like a big, a big fan of mine is someone like Christopher Nolan, who people argue, you know, his performances tend to be a little weaker, but he has such, you know, purposeful overarching themes where flatter performances still kind of lend itself to his style. And again, so I'm kind of in the middle because I don't think I don't want flat performances, but I also see the merit of like pushing you know, understanding what's more important in the situation than trying to, you know, spend millions of dollars, you know, doing hundreds of takes on. And at the end of the day, you're going to see five seconds of it. So, well, and, and that's the, you go to the other side. Christopher Nolan might work with uh, 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 Christian, what's it, Christian Bale? Is that it? The, the Batman? Mm, yeah. You know, because Christian Bale is the actor's Kubrick, mm-hmm. right? He wants to do 91 takes, yeah. you know, and you have to go, eh. You know, because I, I, and, and, and I always read, I read one time is that Kubrick was trying to get the actors to stop acting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that, go ahead. oh, sorry, but I was saying that, that works when you have a lot of time and money and you're Stanley Kubrick and you get it and, and you get to do whatever you want. Um, I think in the independent space, the reality of it is like, you know, digital technology allows, you know, much smaller budget projects to take place, which is great. But uh, there's, 
I was talking to my cinematographer about this and like it goes to every position, it goes to acting, lighting, whatever. It's like you almost need to say this is good enough. This is good enough, not in a bad way, not saying we're compromising and giving in, but it's good enough because would you rather have one perfect shot or would you rather make your day? You know, would you have <laughs> one beautiful, greatest looking thing ever or would you actually have a finished project? And like I said, the idea of compromising a film is the reality is everyone could keep tweaking and adjusting and doing stuff and again and again and again. But I think a big part of being a director is essentially you're the one that has to pull the plug and say, that's good enough. Let's move on. We need these other pieces. Otherwise, all of this is going to be for naught. So. Well, you're saying that you try to choose the right actor. Mm-hmm. And I find that fascinating, right? Uh, so when, you, when, you, when, when you're going through the audition process, right? And you're trying to find that actor. And I, I, I had scholarship offers to be an actor, but I didn't because I didn't have any courage. Mm. I, I saw the best actor I ever saw when I went to school. His highlight of his career was like a 40-second walk-on in Barnaby Jones, mm. an old TV detective series from, with Buddy Ebsen back in the 70s. Right. And he was the best I ever saw on stage. He was amazing. Will Collins, look him up. He was amazing. Uh, but And I'm like... Well, if he can't make it, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try. Because it is such a cutthroat thing. And, and it, there's a lot of times it has nothing to do mm-hmm. with you. That if you, don't, if you don't look the part, you know, but, there's, but, but you have to bring something. There's nobody who told Christopher Walken to talk like this, you know, <laughs> or Al Pacino or anybody or Nick Cage. You have to have something that brings to the role and... It's easy to pick up Nick Cage now, mm. or, you know, let's forget that his uncle is Francis Ford Coppola. So let's go Christopher Walken, <laughs> right? But it's hard to pick that guy. Here's a guy from New York who's a dancer right? who, who talks funny, you know? Where does that, when you are casting roles, what is it? Do you see it in your mind, or are you waiting for the actor to show you who that person is? Well, I think, first of all, I don't think I'm that great of a writer. So I'm always excited to see what an actor will bring. And whenever we do initial auditions or callbacks or whatever, I tend to, you know, let them do it how they want first. I don't want to come in with a preconceived notion. Um, something I like to do, though, is write backstory. Right. You know, like a one paragraph, two paragraph about the character, not related to the scene or the story or whatever, just kind of about their life and then give that to them. And then see how they register and use that to, you know, bring it in. And because it's, you know, you talk about the authenticity of performance too. So it's like, you know, in a space where we can only do two, three takes per, per shot. It's like, I can't, we don't have time to get them there. They just have to kind of understand that. And like you said, the reality is a lot of it's luck, right place, right time, like having the right look, you know, being the flavor of the week, the style of like actor that people are looking for. And that's the harsh reality of it. Like I know for a fact, I, could never be an actor with the amount of, you know, rejection, like day in, day out. Like my actors on my, while we're shooting, they'd go back to their hotels and they had to do more auditions. You know, they were doing like five auditions back in their hotel room. And it's just like, it's just this constant, constant grind. And so I have, you know, the utmost respect for them. Um, I think, I think it was uh, Vin Diesel who actually talked about that. He, when he was started acting with, he had like a roommate, bunch of roommates, like four of them or something. And he actually said, he said, I wasn't even the best out of all my friends in that group. I was just the one that stuck with it the longest. And it's really just making yourself available and just believing yourself and staying 
you know, true to yourself and even just hoping that opportunity will come. I mean, even look at, look at the Oscars this year, everything, everywhere, all at once, right? Michelle Yao, like she's been in a million things, but you know, out of all the roles she gets, it's, you know, a sci-fi, you know, dimension traveling. What was it? The director said, like, we want to put our mom in the matrix, basically. Uh, and, you know, it's like, who would have thought that would be the role that gets her to the Oscar and stuff like that? So it's like, you never know. It's like, so going into it, I think a lot of people, especially actors and directors go into the industry because of the fame aspect of it, the money aspect of it. And not saying they're not good performers or artists, but I think you kind of, they're thinking about that more than the art. And if you go into the tension that this is what you love doing and you would do this, you know, whether you're making a million dollars or making zero dollars, like I think, you know, no matter what, you'll find a way. So, yeah, because the fame, the fame and the $20 million a, a, a film paycheck brings its own troubles, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you think it's going to, you think it's going to ever solve everything. And everything's going to be great and everything's that. Well, now when you start that, you're you're the gravy train for a whole lot of people. And oh, by the way, you know, Mark, it looks like you've gained three pounds. Mm. You know, I, I remember hearing that uh, quote from uh, Mel Gibson that he would try to do three or four films in a year because that's as long as he could keep the Mel Gibson shape. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that Hugh uh, Jackman wanted to stop doing Wolverine is he didn't want to have to work as hard to get that wolverine shape yeah and you don't even you don't even think about that you know that yeah you got 20 million dollars in the bank but you're eating lettuce and getting up at 3 a.m for for your first of six workouts yeah yeah and and it's like i think him and henry cavill they would basically dehydrate themselves for like two days it's like oh i got a shirtless scene coming up i'm just not going to drink water for two days so my skin tightens up so you can see the abs better and it's like any actor you talk to, that's the most unhealthy thing you can do. And anytime they're not on a movie, that's why they don't look like that, right? Because it's like impossible. So it's 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 the thing that again, all the stuff that you don't think about. That's the the beauty of filmmaking is the escape into fantasy. Mm-hmm. And and I was sitting here thinking, everything, everything, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once. You had to sit back and go, hey, I did that movie. I did that. It's, it's Park Arcadia. I did that movie already. I just didn't have the $50, $80 million budget. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm glad that movie did so well. I think it's a good jump for, you know, you know, Asian Americans in cinema in general. And I think it really kind of opened the box for uh, you know, new voices, new opportunities, and you know, new actors in general to get lead roles. So I'm I'm very excited and, and glad that it did so well. Well, that and crazy rich Asians. That was the first. That was the first kind of domino yeah. that fell that kind of put us on the map. I yeah. feel like so. once you started realizing that every culture is pretty much the same culture. Mm-hmm. We all have the crazy aunt. We all have the sister we don't know about. We all have the brother. You know, and and then once it became, it became. I I, I see this in film as either you recognize yourself or you recognize who you want to be. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And 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 I think. We all saw that. We saw ourselves and we saw who we wanted to be. And I think, and and that's when it breaks down. That's, you know, the thing I love about living in California is in, in America. My my son was saying, hey, I want to go to France and try French food. And he goes, what's well, American food? I said, American food's great because it's all of it. It's all of our food. Yeah. Right. You don't think anything of it. You know, we we go to a Chinese restaurant or a Japanese or an Ethiopian or anything. And it's our food. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's the beautiful thing about America. It's the it's the blending of everything. And it's good. That, yeah, <laughs> it's and that's good. how you become, yeah, you become straight. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back because we want to talk about 
Nisei. Okay. Right? Yeah. And, and the, the important, that it's just an important film. We're going to come right back with Darren Haroa. Haroa. Right. Haroa! <laughs> like I told you earlier. I told you earlier. It's not the first time, won't be the last. We'll be right back, and here's what we know. At Reed Animal Hospital, they treat your pet as if it was their own. Now, I'm a very satisfied customer. I can tell you they mean that. It's not a chain. It truly is about helping you and your pet enjoy life together. Dr. David Reed and his entire staff take the time to get to know you and your pet. I can tell you what I like. He's helped me better understand what my dog Luna needs and how I can take care of her more efficiently and kindly. Find them online at reedanimalhospital.com. Two locations, Saratoga and Campbell. Little secret from me to you, Dr. Reed actually gives you his cell number so he can answer your questions and concerns. They really are committed to you and your pet. ReedAnimalHospital.com. Sterling Oak Cabinetry has one goal to build the cabinets of your dreams. They literally specialize in custom cabinetry. No cookie cutter, everything looks the same stuff that you find at the big box stores. Your kitchen is the centerpiece of your home, and your home is your biggest investment. They can work with you or your designer to build just what you want with the materials and finish that you want. And because they're a brand new company, they'll be getting busier and busier. But if you order right now, they'll get your order to you in six to eight weeks. In the world of cabinetry, that's blindingly fast. Contact Rob Scoveman at R-S-K-O-V-M-A-N-D at Yahoo.com or go to SterlingOakCabinetry.com and get your dreams made reality tomorrow. So when it comes to Nisei, Mm -hmm. did you feel the weight of the responsibility of making that movie? Because it is an important film. It is an important film, and and it's a story that's been told and needs to keep being told. Yeah, I mean, so... I grew up with these stories my whole life, you know, being Japanese American, having my grandfather around. And I just kind of assumed it was common knowledge, like let alone like West Coast alone, finding out like not a lot of people know about it. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I would anecdotally, my grandfather would tell me stuff and I would hear things. I would do book reports on it whenever I could. Actually in high school, my my history teacher, Mr. Hoffman, give him a shout out. He always let me do uh, movies instead of reports because he knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I actually did a lot of you know, documentary style footage on that, about my grandfather, about the camps. Um, When it came time to doing it as a film, you know, I've been thinking about this project since I've been in film school, you know, so 20 or 15 years now, you know, and I think when I was younger, the weight and responsibility I felt from it was too daunting. And I didn't feel like I was capable or ready to tell this story. And I've, it's always tough with biopics, right? Or anytime it's about someone, a a real person where you don't want to mess it up, whether it's family member, whether it's, you know, someone famous, whether it's just being a real person, you don't want to mess it up. And I think that kind of fear kept me from exploring this. And I knew, Mm -hmm. like I said, I always wanted to do this. This was always on my radar. It's like, if I can do one film, it had to be this film. Um, And actually during COVID was kind of a uh, resurgence for me, just kind of like my head was like down in the sand, just working crazy, doing commercials, all this stuff. And COVID, like, it was finally like, there's no work, there's nothing to do. You actually have to sit in your thoughts and think about what you want to do. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I should start to revisit this and actually like, you know, 
be upfront and comfort, you know, just hit it, just go straight at it and see what happens. And the thing I kind of realized was you're not going to get it right. You're not going to get someone's life right, no matter how hard you try, you Uh know, because you only know a small fraction of it. You don't know all the little nuances. You don't know all the intimacies of it. And so it doesn't matter how much research, it doesn't matter how many books I read or how many people I talk to, it's not going to be 100% accurate. So what is the importance of this story and why do I want to tell this story? And it's kind of twofold. So first, uh, well, this is kind of jumping ahead. When we started doing it, we started uh, the pre-production of the project. We actually, I, I, we partnered with San Jose State and kind of did an educational thing over the summer and taught students to let them work on it. Um, like my first day of class, I was like, all right, how many people have seen uh, Saving Private Ryan? I was like, two hands. How many people have seen, seen Band of Brothers? Like no hands. And it dawned on me that I, my generation is one of the last generations that has a direct connection to the subject matter. And so it's like, they don't have grandparents that they could talk to. They don't have parents that they can talk to about what World War II in general, right? And I think, you know, history kind of fades out of existence once you stop talking about it, once you stop having that direct connection. And so that just kind of solidified the importance of this story, especially now where you're getting into these generations that don't know the tragedies, tragedies, and you don't know what the Japanese American community has gone through. And especially in this day and age with everything going on, you know, the model minority, you know, stop Asian hate, stuff like that. It's you need to be reminded of, you know, our own past, our own history. So we don't fall into the same mistakes. And so that was, that was what kind of solidified me to doing it, but kind of going back to my own kind of personal, okay with it was I talked to my mom and I was kind of like, Hey, I want to do a story on, on grandpa. And I'm thinking about this. Um, and the interesting thing about it was my mom didn't know a lot of the stories because, why would he tell her that? You know, he's not going to tell his child about these horrors that he experienced in the war. And so it was actually a learning experience for my mom at the same time. So it's like, I'm doing these research, I'm looking through his interviews and I'm telling my mom, it's like, Hey, did you know this happened? And he would, she would go like, no, he never told me that. And so it was this really rewarding experience to be able to go through it, like as an entire family, like my mom, my sister, my dad, we were all involved with it. And so that made me feel comfortable. And once I like, I read the script, uh, in, in the film itself, my mom made a lot of the props. She made the flag, she made the doll, stuff like that. Um, but kind of getting that validation and okay through the whole process of it saying like, Hey, we're, what you're doing is right. And we're proud of you for doing this. That, that helped me, you know, make it. I, it's, it's so tenderly done. And you're right. I think that's a great observation. My father fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. But you got to remember, I'm an oops baby. They were, as, as, as my sisters like to tell me, I was a Thanksgiving meal that got out of hand. <laughs> right? <laughs> so <laughs> my father was old when he had me. And so, uh, so I, I still have that. And at no point did he ever talk about what happened in World War II. Mm. Because that was the generation really all the way up. We're better about it now in the current conflict. And even now we're still not good about it. Yeah. But back then it was, and that was, and that was for a, a Caucasian guy. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and he didn't want to talk about it. I can't imagine. And Nisei stands for second generation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and what we asked those young men who willingly did it, that's the thing you have to remember. They willingly did it of going in and fighting, knowing that a lot of the soldiers, much less the country behind them, did not 
support them and did not trust them and did it's mind blowing and and I, that's why I'm I'm so happy you made this because because we hear about a lot of society's ills mm-hmm. today right well it's not nearly as bad as what came before you right i grew up in south alabama in the 60s mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I don't live there is because I could not stand. I got through college in the 60s and 70s, graduated, and just couldn't stand being there. Right. I tried to be out. I, I just, it's different now. There's still bastions, but it's different now. But I could not take the overt racism. Right. Just, just something me is who I am. And when I hear people complain a lot about today's society, I'm like, it, it almost like, you have no idea what people in the 60s were going through, much less in the 40s. And the the sacrifices those young men and women made, really, I, I was thinking this when I was seeing it, dude, you should find a different part of this story and tell it every 15 years yeah. in a different way. As you grow as a filmmaker, as you grow in the different stuff, I would I would love to see this just be, you know, what's that? What's that uh, Ethan Hawke movie where Paris, Sunrise, Sunset, you know how they keep just revisiting it every, Oh, you know, yeah. but, but I, I would love for you to revisit it as you grow, mm-hmm. because I think you are 100% right. It shocks me that two people said Saving Private Ryan and nobody watched Band of Brothers, you know, because we are losing. And to this day, nobody... Talk about World War One about about World War One with anybody. Mm-hmm. Crickets. Nobody understands World War One. Nobody understands the horror that World War One was, uh, and it's and it's a shame that we lose it. I am I am thrilled to see that there's still some source. What was that 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 film that came out a few years ago that was one continuous shot or was made to look like uh, 1917. Yeah. yeah, and that's about World War One and the horrors that it is. That's it's such a fascinating thing, and I'm. When 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 your mother got to see the final cut, what was that like for you? Uh, me, my, me and my sister always laugh about this because my mom is the harshest critic and the most like upfront person, uh, and so I, I could tell it meant a lot to her. I, I could tell that you know she loved it, uh, but it was funny. She watched it. She said she said yeah, it's good. Uh, but people are my friends and other people are just like, well, she didn't like cry. She didn't react. And I'm like, well, no, you have to understand like in an Asian family, if you say you're going to do a good job and you do it, like that's what you set out to do. Like what, what, what did she expect? Like <laughs> you did what you did, what you said you're going to do. What do you want a reward for that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was, it was funny though. Cause like, even going back, like when I asked her like, Hey, can you make the flag for the movie? And she was kind of hemming and hawing about it. She goes, I don't know, like, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, it would mean a lot. And then she goes, no, nah, I don't really want to. And then she calls me. She goes, so what's the flag for? Like, what, what, what's this? Is he like this stupid thing he's going to put on his shoulder and run into the battlefield? Like some like platoon moment or something like that. And I was like, no, no, no. Let, let me send you the script. Read it. And then you can tell. And then so she read the script. She goes, okay, I get it now. Okay, yeah, I'll make the flag. I thought you were just going to do some dumb thing, you know, like, you know, over his shoulder running around with it kind of thing. And so, wow, uh, <laughs> mom is hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
not not park, but another project I did a few years ago. I didn't I, I didn't write it. It was like a proof of concept for some producers to make the feature of it. Um, we made that. They wrote it, and it, it wasn't very good. I'll be honest, and I knew it wasn't good, but showed it to my mom. Uh, sits down on her computer. We watch it. Movie ends. Doesn't say anything and takes a breath. She goes, "Did you write that?" And I said, "No." She goes, "Oh, thank God!" And she gets up and, <laughs> and walks away. <laughs> so I, I love it because, like, if 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 she gives the stamp of approval, then you know it's good. So and and she likes it. She likes Nisei. So, can you think of some movies off the top of your head that you love because they're so well written? Off the top of my head, um. Blue Valentine, Derek C. in France. I think he's a fantastic screenwriter. He also did Place Beyond the Pines. Um, I think he just has a way with, you know, kind of modern storytelling. Uh, I think <laughs> kids movie, like one of the most structurally sound movies uh, that I, because I, I just watched it recently, was uh, Wreck-It Ralph, <laughs> that animation movie. The first one? The first one, yeah. The second yeah, one was Ralph bad. No, 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 that one was yeah, terrible. not so much. But structurally, from like a storytelling point of view, it hits all the beats that it needs to hit, and it, it wraps up perfectly. Uh, I know that's kind of a weird divergent from that stuff. No, because I think the best two of the best movies off the top of my head are Up mm -hmm. and Coco. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I mean, talk about tie a story together. And I had a songwriter tell me one time he doesn't like songs that make you try to cry. Mm. He makes a song that makes it so you cry for your own reasons. Yeah. Right. And, and, and you have to be able to go, that's such a beautiful moment or that, but it's for my reasons. It's not because you're showing me a child dying, you know, or anything like that. You're showing me that beautiful moment where all of us will cry and we may cry for five different reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, that's at the, the kind of the heart of any good film, right? It's not beating you over the head with a message. It's not telling you to feel this way. It's not feeling you should feel happy. It's not telling you should feel guilty. It's presenting you with a situation and your own in interpretation is what kind of, you know, breaks you down at the end. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing to get right. So would you, cause I know you're talking about the end of indie world, but you know, a, a lot of the people in the indie world end up being you know, the, Hollywood is actually coming to look for you guys mm -hmm. to bring a new eye into it. Would you love a superhero movie? Would you, or would you go, eh, it's just, and you can be completely honest one way or the other. I, I would in the sense of like, it depends on what capacity, right? Like if I come in from the ground and I get to not necessarily write it, but be kind of part of the structuring of it. Um, I don't know necessarily coming in for like a third movie, like if it's like maybe a new character, a new hero that excites me, you know, kind of building the world out that way. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say no, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. When they start racking up the, the truckloads of money. Well, yeah, like uh, Eternals was the director, Chloe Zhao. She did uh, Nomadland before that. Right. And then took off, gets, you know, hundred million dollar Marvel movie. So they're, they're looking yeah. for you. I mean, Christopher Nolan was nobody before uh, Batman. Really? Yeah. I mean, and the fact that, you know, and, and they let him create his vision. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest you know? thing with the superhero movies, right? Is bringing you in because of your indie skill set, right? Because he had Memento and they were like, okay, I want to see this unique perspective. Once they start con trying to control it too much, that's when it, you know, you kind of lose track of it. Kind of like uh, uh, Edgar Wright was supposed to do Ant-Man. 
And him and Marvel just butted heads because Edgar Wright wants to do Edgar Wright things and Marvel wants to do Marvel things. And so it just didn't work out. So depends on what the well, project are, is. Yeah. And, and, and or you've got to be John Favreau. Yeah. You know, John Favreau, who just everybody knows now, he knows your product better than you know it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and I see I see how we need to go with that. Him and James Gunn now, as far as that, they're yeah. they're pretty much everybody wants. You know, the fact that James Gunn is in charge of the DC universe, he just came from Marvel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you know because <laughs> and Marvel's okay with that because they're like, we got John Favreau. Yeah, you know, and and we'll see where that takes us. But that would it would be fascinating to see where this takes off. So what's what is it? What's a day like for you now? Is it is it constantly writing or putting together the next project or looking at the next project? Or are you like my wife puts on big events? Mm. She works five years in the future, right? So she's doing next year, the year after that, year after that, year after that. How's filmmaking? Is that the way? What? How does that work? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of downtime in the sense of when you're writing. It's you know, it's very singular. It is very lonely. Um, currently, I'm working on the feature script for this. It originally started out as a miniseries, uh, like a Band of Brothers style. That would be like the best case scenario, but uh, that's kind of a long shot. So I'm really kind of reinventing it and reorganizing it as a, as a feature script. And so part of my time is spent writing. Um, I'm actually producing another independent film, which we hope to go into production end of the year. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time focusing on that too. I was actually uh, location scouting last week. Uh, so it's... A constant juggle. There's not really a set schedule because things happen, you know, so quickly. And then also I'll pepper in commercial work. Like this weekend, I have a commercial shoot for a client. So, you know, between that, trying to get this other movie off the ground and writing, those are kind of the three big uh, factors that... Yeah, you've done some pretty of, big commercial suits. I mean, Airbnb and Cisco, that's mm. who I... We're, we're Cisco family here. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's not like you're. it's not like you're going out there to, you know... Jimmy's jumpsuits. I mean, you're yeah. you're pitching big. Yeah, and and that stuff's always fun. Corporate gigs are good. One, obviously, they pay, but also it's there's a lot less pressure in my mind just because I've been doing it for so long. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up around all these tech companies, and so it's like, oh, you're spinning a laptop for ten hours and shooting it. You know what I mean? It's it's a lot less stressful than oh my god, this is my passion project and everything has to line up correctly, right? Uh, so this pays the bills and allows me to do what my passion project is. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the idea of Nisei is a is a uh, a, a series is great. Have mm. you have you reached out to the streaming services, Netflix, Hulu, all those people, HBO Max? Uh, we've started that process. The the problem with doing it as a series is because I'm still technically considered a first time director, and show running TV is a completely different world. So, like, let's say someone does, oh, this is a great idea, we love it. They would probably just want to buy it outright, and so I would lose control of it, and I kind of want to keep it. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, yeah, as long as as long as you can, as long as you can drive the car, you should drive. The yeah. Car. Yeah. You know, so that's I I find that just fascinating. I could nerd out on films with you all day, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I know you've got a zillion <laughs> things to do, but I would I would love to sit back and just do another hour with you where we just sit back and talk about different movies and what you see and and who would you cast here? How would you recast this different? Who would you love to? Is there an actor right off the bat that you'd love to work with? I mean, just that you say, yeah, I would I would find it interesting to put them in a film. Uh, I would love, I was literally talking to someone last night about this. Uh, 
Ken Watanabe, I'd love to work with him, of course. Um, I think yeah. he would be great in some of these roles. And actually another actor that I just recently, like I started listening to his podcast, John Bernthal. I absolutely love his style, the way he thinks about filmmaking. Um, there's, there's no ego, you know, appreciative of the art, appreciative of everything that's given him in his life, but understanding like the process of it and not making it bigger than it needs to be. And I think Wasn't that, he the Punisher, the Punisher. Yeah. He was in the Pacific too. Wow. He, he got killed off like episode two. If, no, sorry. If people <laughs> haven't, but that, that, that's an old show. So yeah, I can, I can imagine what it's like when an actor, when all of a sudden you see yourself written out, it's like, Oh, he was just starting out, though, so two episodes is, was good for him back then. Yeah, take it and run with it. Well, yeah. man, I have I've just so enjoyed this. And like I said, I'd love to have you back on and just geek yeah. out over films. Please. Because I think, again, I would, I will, I will jabber <laughs> on because I just find, I find the film world so fascinating. I find it so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, I love hearing about all the little things that nobody ever thinks about and all the things that has to happen for anything to happen. You know, I don't care if you see six seconds of film. So much work went into that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's and, and I, and I want to sit back and figure out when do you decide to do a stationary camera? When do you decide to do a handheld? When do you do, you know, the moving camera? I mean, and that's the director's job. A combination with like cinematographer and everyone else. But yeah, no, I'd love to have that conversation because even for me, I came from the crew side, right? Outside of school, I didn't direct right away just because, you know, lack of confidence or whatever. But so I actually was a union dolly grip for years. So I did a bunch of TV shows, you know, pushing the camera around and being involved with that stuff. So all that technical stuff, I love, I love talking about it. So I, uh, I'm, I'm talking to a New York times bestselling author tomorrow and, uh, I'm going to let him know, Hey, if you ever need a director, I know someone. <laughs> I know a guy. You're going to love him. Send him, send, send him Nisei, not Park. Park's a little My, dated. So. I'll send him Nisei, but I'll sit back and also say, just look at this kid. This guy, this guy's something. So, no. and it's like, all right, that's fun. <laughs> Darren, thank you. And I, I look forward to it. Darren Haru Ray. Haruo. Haruo. My God, I had four shots at it and I've lost it every time. It's okay. You know, you go by you go by D Ray, right? I mean, you're good because your website is DHR. Yeah, I go by Darren. Darren's fine. Keep it easy. I'm just going to call you Darren. I, you know, you and I will just, you know, we'll mm. just figure out that's where it's at. Yeah. Darren, this has been fascinating. I've so enjoyed it. Good luck to you and Nisei and check it out. Check out the work. And again, it's uh, DHR is what you'll find online. That's where I found you. Right. Yeah. And, and then Roland Films. Roland Films. And then our Instagram is at Nisei the Film. And that'll be any showings and stuff like that. You can keep up to date with it. All right. We're going to do this again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I'd love to do it. This was fun. Thanks for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time.